Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 209, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. This week, are there any hidden nuggets inside that new infrastructure law that may impact schools and students? We'll talk about just that. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why do students remember everything that's on television, but seem to forget everything you, the teacher says? A leading cognitive psychologist tells us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum and instruction, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing on this lovely day? I normally tell you how I'm just fine, and, you know, I try to be as positive, but I have to tell you, I am exhausted, and it's only Tuesday. Yeah, what's the deal? Like, what's so exhausting this week? I, I just, there's just so much happening, and we're so close to a holiday break. I think it's just the stretch for everyone. Yeah, we're creeping up on Thanksgiving. Did you secure your turkey? Um, no, we're not a big turkey and dressing well, family. <laughs> that works out for you then. I was all like concerned because you hear about the supply chain and like, yeah, you ain't gonna be able to find a turkey. I did find a frozen turkey um, and I secured my turkey. It's in my freezer, but I need to start thawing it because it takes like four or five days. That's hilarious because I'm probably going to make enchiladas. That sounds great. <laughs> I mean, you could do turkey enchiladas, so that would also be good, but I get it. You know, turkey's not your thing. Oh, no, not turkey enchiladas. I mean, it's like chicken, you know? No, it's different. It doesn't, the flavor is not there. The moisture is not there. Yeah. Yeah. That is, yeah, the, mm-hmm. that is the challenge with turkey. I normally go for the deep fry because it just kind of seals in some moisture, you know, and that's about as good as you're going to get in my opinion. Mm. All righty. Well, lots to talk about today and um, we have a great interview coming up. So we're going to kind of keep our segment a little bit on the shorter side, but I do want to dive into the infrastructure bill and how it affects schools. Cause there is some, some nuggets in there that I think maybe not, what you're looking for, but there is some good stuff out there that I think will help schools in the long term. Okay. All right. So let's let's dive into it. First up, we I think the pandemic made this clear that it was needed, improved broadband access. So maybe not directly affecting schools, but at least indirectly affecting those students who are in rural areas or maybe in a city and, and can't afford it. Um, it includes $65 billion for improving broadband and like for example they even break it up like two billion is supposed to be set aside for tribal broadband connectivity and things like that so were you aware that was in the bill i am aware and i have to say that i kind of disagree with it not being a, um, a direct impact on schools i think that it is because in those rural areas but not only in rural areas there's even some urban areas where families are unable to afford internet. And so when we make it affordable, when we make it accessible, it allows schools to really serve kids the way they want to, especially mm-hmm. during quarantine or um, for virtual learning. So I think it's going to make a huge impact. Oh, I agree. And, and when I say indirect, I mean, it's the money's not necessarily flowing through the school, I guess, by saying indirect. Instead, this is going to be going to places to, to provide internet where high-speed internet isn't accessible. So yeah. Uh, 
And think about this. I bet you hadn't thought about this. We have teachers, you know, um, who are on tight budgets and may or may not be able to afford internet or possibly living in those rural areas and not having access at home. So I think it's going to make their lives a little bit easier and a little more efficient in trying to do their work outside of the classroom. And I want to say this because we have listeners from all over and I just want to draw a picture because I'm at my home is has great internet access. I have, um, yes, I'm in Mississippi and people don't think Mississippi probably has the best internet, but I have gigabit internet speed. It's great. However, I have a 21 year old son who's enrolled at junior college and he lives about a 20 minute drive from me and where his house is, he has horrible cellular phone access. So he has very poor, like can't really stream videos or anything over cellular. And he has no access to cable or, or anything. I know he could get like HughesNet satellite internet, but it's not really that great and not really worth the money. And we have actually ordered uh, Starlink with Elon Musk's internet company for that particular location at his house. But we're still waiting on that. It hasn't made its way all the way to the south here yet. So here you have this this kid who is enrolled in junior college and he has no high speed internet at home. So I just I want people out there who like maybe live like in a, in a city, live outside the Atlanta area or Washington, D.C. area. Like this is a problem in many places around the country. I absolutely agree. A huge problem. Yep. But if we can get it fixed or at least make it a little bit better, we're taking some baby steps. My, my only hope is $65 billion. I hope it's spent wisely. It's so easy to just throw money at a problem and it not fix it. Time will tell over the next couple of years if you know those dollars were spent. Like I don't know. I don't have the how. Like How do you bring access to rural Mississippi? Like or Do you force the Comcast and the AT&Ts of the world to run cable? Is that it? Well, I, that's pretty much it. And of course, there needs to be some oversight. So is there some type of accountability committee that's going to review um, the effectiveness of the disbursement of the funds and also the implementation process of the things that they're saying they're going to do. It's Congress. I'm sure they got that all under control, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. As usual. <laughs> right. All right. So uh, another thing in, in the bill is $2.5 billion for, and stick with me here, it's going to be new, in quotes, zero emissions or electric school buses. So it looks like the buses could actually consist of CNG, which I don't know exactly what that is. Um, you've got propane, biofuels, um, but it's just big, clean school bus program. And that, again, is $2.5 billion for new buses that are clean buses. Now, listen, you know I'm going to always give you my true, honest opinion. Let's hear it. I think it's great. But can they give us some funding to increase pay for bus drivers so that we can stop struggling to to hire drivers? I don't want to say that's not in there. I mean, from the articles I read, I don't see it. But then when you're talking a trillion dollars, maybe there's some money in there for it. I, I don't know. But you're right. That, well, that is a fair point. It, we do need an overhaul of the fleets for the school districts. We definitely want to make them a little bit more environmentally conscious and, and up to date. But um, we have to make the non-certified positions a little bit more desirable. And while we say, okay, well, states are, it's up to the states to dis decide how school districts are going to receive their funding. But if it's a nationwide issue right now, lots of articles out about districts struggling to find drivers, even some districts shutting down because they can't properly get, you know, all of their mm -hmm. students to school, then let's have that conversation on top of improving, um, you know, the buses. Every time I see a bus driver or pass one in town, I just think, bless you. Like you are a good mm -hmm. 
person. Like, I don't know if they need do the job because they they need the money, or they just do it because they know it needs to be done. It like I, I think it's a know. little bit of both. They know it needs to be done. Oftentimes, we we have folks that are retired or they have second jobs, mm-hmm. um, and this is an extra you know form of income. But at the end of the day. It is a difficult job to manage and supervise children while trying to yes. safely drive them. Um, it's a tough job. And um, and then I during just, a pandemic, like you're like, hey, let me hop on this Petri dish and, yep. and hope I'm OK. With 70 like, kids. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's uh, yeah. The, thank you so much to all the bus drivers out there. Um, another thing in there, and this is one that is going to get overlooked a lot. I've only found this in one article, but there is an act that was embedded inside the infrastructure bill called the Stop for School Buses Act. And the bill calls for a comprehensive federal program for preventing illegal passing of school buses and requires that the U.S. Department of Transportation to review illegal passing laws, penalties, um, and, and levels for enforcement, like at all, all state levels. Um, this is looks like it's also going to include some money for video cameras and audible warning systems and other things mm. like that to equip on the buses. Now, here in Mississippi, when back when I was reporting news, we had a child in uh, Jones County, a kindergartner, who was run over by a school bus by a guy who, I think he was intoxicated, if I remember correctly, but he also decided he was going to pass a school bus and he hit a child. Um, it, it was devastating. And the mother and father... Um, they lobbied for years and they finally got a very strict law passed in the state of Mississippi. So it sounds like that we're going to see more of this in more states due to the Stop for School Buses Act. Thoughts? It's it's needed. And that actually makes my heart really happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's we had there was video from the bus driver when it happened. It was one of the most mm-hmm. tragic stories. It's one that really sticks with you. Um, and there's really no excuse for passing a school bus. And I know like no. in Lamar County, I think they spent their own money and equipped cameras on. I, I, I don't want to say all, but many of the school buses mm-hmm. for, for that purpose. So they can actually prosecute. And if you pass a school bus in Lamar County, I think you will get a ticket. You, you will be tracked down. So it's, Well, you should. Yep. You absolutely should. No doubt. Um, and it's a shame that we have to go to that extreme um, to get people to care that much about about children. The bill also includes $55 billion to deliver clean drinking water for households, businesses, schools, and child care centers. So you see schools and, and child care centers on that list. Um, and well, that's pretty cool. Now, now, just I have to throw this out here. Mm-hmm. Um, I sure hope they get plenty in Flint, Michigan. Well, and that's just it. It has to do with lead pipes. The White House estimates that about 400,000 schools and child care centers have unsafe water um, due to lead pipes. So apparently mm-hmm. there's dollars set aside for that. Uh, one thing yes. that was originally in the proposal that did not make it into the finalized bill, uh, there was a proposed legislation to spend $100 billion for school modernization and construction. So that sounds more like, you know, just hmm. rebuild schools that was cut out. While it was a good idea, I would say instead of just rebuilding schools, that there are probably a number of schools, not just, you know, even specifically in our area that need some renovations, um, new windows so that they can be a little bit more energy efficient. Um, you know, we talked about the, the piping, um, you know, roofing that you don't have to just build a whole brand new state of the art school. If we could just invest in, in, in repairing and having better upkeep of our buildings, I think that would be helpful. Yeah. And not to say some of that won't 
possibly get moved into another bill. I know uh, part of the other half of President Biden's plan, the Build Back Better plan, is supposed to be, um, I think he's trying to push that one through. And it, it, I think that was the one where they actually were going to have the mandatory kindergarten. I don't even know if that's still on the table or not. Um, and there's a lot that can happen. Uh, I think the bar is a little bit lower on passage on the second bill. Because mm-hmm. they're going to do that other thing where it's like budget related and only requires 50 votes in the Senate. All right, Christina, are you ready for today's Bright Idea? I am ready. In today's Bright Idea segment, we are going to answer a burning question. Why do students remember everything that's on television but seem to forget everything you, the teacher, says. Our guest, Dr. Daniel Willingham, is a psychologist and professor at the University of Virginia. He's also the author of Why Don't Students Like School, which dives into how the mind works and what it means for the classroom. Dr. Willingham, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Uh, Today, we are really just trying to dive into the, the question of what makes information memorable. And I guess first we need to start with what makes things in general memorable? And and as you write in your article, you kind of start off with a few things that I think a lot of people will recognize. And and one is like emotions and repetition, right? That's right. And uh, emotion is, uh, emotion is actually uh, very interesting because emotion doesn't reliably guarantee that you're going to remember anything. It's sort of an accelerant. Uh, When when you have moments of high emotion, uh, it typically will boost the signal, so to speak. Um, but if there's very little signal there to start with, there's no guarantee that emotion alone is going to do it. And in a way, repetition has some of the same flavor. Repetition usually helps memory and repetition is probably more important than emotion. Um, but repetition is not a guarantee that you're going to remember something. You uh, as we'll, I'm sure, get to in a moment. Mm-hmm. What What's really important in memory is the type of mental manipulation that you do with the content that you're hoping to remember, or even the content that you don't, you're not hoping to remember. Um, because of course, most of what we remember is not stuff that we especially meant to remember. It's just you think about stuff and then it sticks with you. So if you're thinking about stuff in the right way and that thinking is repeated, then repetition will definitely help. But if you're thinking about stuff in a kind of shallow way, not really thinking about it very carefully, uh, repetition is no guarantee that it's going to be remembered. Uh, so one of the uh, ways you can easily appreciate that is consider uh, some sort of thing that you have very frequently encountered um, and yet don't remember very many details of. So for example, uh, try, you can ask people questions about what a dollar bill looks like. Mm-hmm. If you ask people, think about um, there's an eagle on the back of a U.S. $1 bill. Uh, can you tell me what's written right below the eagle? No, I would or, guess like e purplus unum maybe, but I, I, I might be wrong about that's that. That's a good guess, yeah. um, but that's actually not it. It's okay. actually of the United States. Okay. There you go. <laughs> right, which is a little odd. Um, but anyway, you get the idea. Right. Um, you know, you think about the countless numbers of $1 bills that you've seen, you would think you really know, you should know what a $1 bill looks like. Uh, and yet all these details pass before your eyes repeated many, many times, but uh, it doesn't stick with you because, uh, and, and people's intuition about this is exactly right. You know, when you point this out, they say, well, I never really think about 
you know, exactly what's on a bill. And it's like, exactly that, that is the point. So uh, it's not that repetition doesn't help memory. It certainly can. But again, I think a good way to think about it is sort of an accelerant to the right types of thought processes. Yeah, it, and you're, you're steering me and, and our listeners. When I say emotions of repetition in the article, like you, you point out these things that the, these are not like, while we might think that these are something that enforce memories, it's not necessarily the case as, as you've eloquently explained. And one thing that you do say in the article that, that stuck with me, um, ironically, is that you say memory is the residue of thought. And I guess we're going to, as we kind of dive into this, we're going to keep coming back to that, that, phrase, right? That's exactly right. And, and the, uh, it's, it's a idea that's painfully obvious once you, uh, sort of spell it out. Um, uh, what you think about really determines what you remember. So the reason that you don't remember what's on the back of the $1 bill is that most of the time, when you look at a $1 bill, you're not thinking about what's right. written on the back. You're looking in your wallet and you're looking for cues, probably looking for the one with George Washington on it or the one that has the numeral one on it. And that's all you're thinking about at the time. Uh, and so, therefore, that's what you remember. And the same thing is true for more complex memories. And this is where we start getting into uh, how this might really matter in classrooms. Mm-hmm. Any concept, even a relatively simple concept like a chair, has many different features. And the feature that you're going to remember later depends on the feature that you think about at the time. So I can think about a chair as something to sit on, of course, and that's the typical way to think about a chair. But I can also think about a chair as uh, something that has glued joints, or I can think about a chair as something that uh, can serve uh, in a pinch as a step stool, or I can think of a chair as a weapon in a barroom brawl. So thinking about a chair is a little more complicated than thinking about a chair. Uh, Experiments show that if you prompt people to think about a chair Mm -hmm. as something with glued joints, the way a carpenter might think about it, and then an hour later, you say, so we we talked about some things uh, an hour ago, were any of the things like pieces of furniture or like a table or something else like that? And a substantial percentage of people will say, no, I don't think we really talked about that. Right. So even though I've given them a very good hint about that, yeah, one of the, one of the words that I asked you to remember was chair because I directed their thinking about chairs to this very unusual feature of chairs. That doesn't really match the way they're thinking about an hour later, which is the, something to sit on feature of chairs. So when we say memory is the residue of thought, what we what what we're highlighting is the way the mind stores memory is very particular in terms of meaning. Uh, whatever it is, whatever features that you're thinking about at the time, uh, that's what you're going to remember later. And it highlights for teachers, I think, the importance of lesson plans, sort of um, being able to anticipate how kids are going to think about whatever happens in a lesson plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's very obvious that you, you know, you want to be sure that, that, that children are really paying attention to the lesson and that they're, they're going to be engaged and they're not drifting away. Uh, but this indicates, you know, whatever it is that they're thinking about, 
that's what they're going to remember. That they're, as I'm fond of saying, they're they're not going to remember what they hope they're going to remember, and they're sure not going to remember what you you hope they're going to remember. They're going to remember whatever they think about, and that whatever they think about is very very narrow. So you want to be very thoughtful as a teacher in uh, uh, in how you try and shape that thinking. You, I think, draw a picture of this pretty well um, with a plot diagram example. Sure. Yeah. This was my nephew and uh, I was visiting and he was working on a homework assignment and he was supposed to diagram the plot of a book that uh, the it was a whole class assignment. Everyone had read the same book and they were supposed to diagram the plot. And the teacher thought, you know what, I'm going to sort of integrate art into this as well. That, that seems like kind of neat and it'll make it more interesting for the students probably. Um, and so the students were to make their plot diagram using as, as much as they could little um, drawings to represent different aspects of the plot. And so my nephew got very caught up in the fact that he couldn't draw a castle <laughs> to his satisfaction. So what he was thinking about during the uh, during that lesson was, or during that homework assignment, he was not really thinking about the elements of the plot and how they relate to one another. He was thinking about drawing a castle. Uh, so this is, yeah, ex exactly a, an example of the kind of thing I mean when I say uh, anticipating uh, what a, a lesson plan will really prompt students to think about. And I guess the the better way to do that would be not to do it with drawings, but to do the plot diagram with words is what you suggest, right? Exactly. Yeah. My daughter, uh, thank you for that elaboration. My, my daughter had a very similar um, assignment several years later, and her teacher asked uh, the students to just use a word or a phrase to, uh, to indicate different elements of the plot. And I thought that was much more effective because then she didn't have to think about the drawing. She was just focused on uh, the how things related to one another in the in the book. You, you kind of point out a couple things that you know often make great teachers, and, and there's lots of things. But you mentioned that uh, you know sometimes it's teachers' personality and, and the way teachers present themselves. But then the other part has to do with them being able to organize ideas and lesson plan in a coherent way, so that students will understand and remember. And I guess. I say that because we have a lot of listeners who are teachers, like, let's give them some tips on how they can organize their lesson plans in a coherent way to, to retain them the memory. I mean, you really push towards the idea of working stories into your lessons plans, right? I do. And I think of this at a, at a very, when I say lessons in a story plan, like the natural thing that it sounds like I'm saying is uh, tell stories and lessons, which, you know, sure, there's no reason not to. Um, but I was actually talking about something slightly different, which is thinking about stories as a way of organizing the lesson plan, whatever the activity might be. Um, so I, in the book, I, I talk about the different elements of story structure and, and why story structure is so effective for memory. So stories, I won't go through the whole thing. It would take a long time. But mm -hmm. uh, just to give a little bit of a preview, the, uh, one, a, a really central element of stories is that they're driven by some sort of a conflict. Um, so, you know, think about any movie that you've seen and there's, you know, there's usually somebody working towards a goal and then there's somebody who's an obstacle to the goal. Um, and that conflict actually, I think, really has a place in classrooms, but it takes a slightly different shape, namely that most of the content that we're 
hoping our students will understand and appreciate is usually the answer to a question. It's a question that, you know, it's frequently sort of a timeless question that, um, that you know, in history, like what were the origins of World War I or in math? Why do all of the uh, three angles uh, within a triangle sum to 180 degrees? Uh, and we go, we frequently as teachers sort of start moving towards the answer to the question uh, rather quickly. Uh, but the answer to a question is frequently not very interesting if you don't know the question in the first place. I think we move to the answer so quickly because the question is really obvious to us. Uh, but when you listen to a story, a storyteller will take some time to build up to that conflict, mm-hmm. let, let you get acquainted with sort of the atmosphere and the characters so that you're a little bit invested, and then they spring the big conflict on you. Uh, and so what I was suggesting is uh, building a lesson plan with a similar sort of scheme in mind. Think about the uh, content that you're hoping to teach as the answer to a question, formulate that question, and then start with how can I get my students invested in this question, interested uh, in finding out the answer to this question? And then uh, that sort of can move the, the story, so to speak, along. But then one other element of stories that I'll mention, stories are very good on connectivity so that uh, they're logical. Uh, There's a a logical structure to the story. This event leads to this next event, which leads to this next event. And that makes the story much easier to follow. So I'm sure teachers are already thinking about lesson plans in that sense. And actually, you want it to sort of flow logically. But I think story structure adds another element to it because you're seeing the uh, the logical progression of ideas as building towards this goal. And you can think of it as just as it does in stories where new complications arise. They One thing gets resolved and then that brings another question up. Okay. So now she's not going to marry him, but now there's this other person who's, who's entered and he wants to you know, fight a duel with that guy. Now what's going to happen, right? So these, these little complications and subplots are what move stories along and uh, make them exciting. And I think the same idea can uh, frequently be worked into lesson plans. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because if I'm a, Uh-oh. if I'm a teacher and I'm listening and I'm thinking I'm a history teacher, I can, I can probably come up with a lesson plan where I identify the conflict and make this lesson plan more interesting. But what if I'm a, a science teacher or a math teacher, can you like pick up a, a common science or math topic and tell us like how you would find the conflict in that lesson? Sure. I mean, I'll just, I'll briefly mention, I mean, I'm a science teacher myself. And of course I teach at the university level, but I, I think about this, uh, this structure all the time and the lessons that I'm, uh, uh, the lessons that I teach. So in, uh, in science, I mean, we're, you know, we're science is, uh, fueled by questions. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I'll start with a question like, uh, why is it that, you know, you, hear something uh, like a phone number and you can remember it for a brief period of time, but then the memory seems to disappear. So this is a common topic in cognitive psychology, uh, working memory, and there are lots of theories. Um, but the uh, the natural progression is sort of scientists' understanding of this phenomenon. So you, you start off with, okay, so initially they had this theory of what's going on to explain that phenomenon, that worked pretty well, and here's an experiment showing why it worked pretty well. But then there was this one curiosity. 
no one could really quite make sense of this little aspect of the data. And so then this other person had an idea about how to explain that, right? So there's the, you know, the unresolved aspect of the data is the complication. That's the the guy who comes along and wants to fight a duel with our hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you just, you sort of move from there. And actually in Why Don't Students Like School, I give an example of a statistics lesson that, um, so closer to mathematics that uh, has the same structure. So I, I absolutely think that that this sort of thing is possible. And I don't want to make it sound as though it's easy. I think it's um, it can be a real challenge. Uh, identifying the question usually isn't that hard. Uh, and identifying the answer is frequently not that hard. It's building the lesson in a way that is going to really make sense to students and speak to students. That, of course, is very challenging. You recommend that teachers think carefully about attention grabbers. What do you mean by that? Attention grabbers, meaning you know, things that you do typically at the beginning of a lesson plan uh, that that will grab attention and that students will find interesting, exciting. Um, and there, there are a couple of reasons that uh, or sort of thoughts I offer on attention grabbers. One is frequently you'll hear like, do the attention grabber at the beginning uh, and that, that, that's sort of meant to be, uh, serve the purpose that I've been describing of like, think about what the question is, like mm-hmm. the content that you want students to understand and appreciate is the answer. Uh, and so the attention grabber is supposed to make students sort of panting to know the answer. And the truth is, I, I, I personally think frequently that's less true than we hope it's going to be. Like the students enjoy the attention grabber, but it doesn't make them that excited to know what the answer is. Um, and again, that's just my opinion. You know, your, mm-hmm. your mileage may vary in your classroom. Uh, but the, uh, the, uh, the reasons, um, uh, in addition to the fact that I'm, I'm cautious about assuming that it always, uh, uh, ignites eagerness to know the answer. The other thing is in terms of grabbing attention, the beginning of a lesson plan is not when you need an attention grabber. Students are already, that's like the one time during my class that I'm pretty confident everyone's paying attention is right at the start. I figure I've got a good 60 seconds or so when no one's drifted off, everyone's with me at the very beginning. And I feel like it's more like in, you know, a third of the way. And then again, two thirds of the way through a class. And I'm like, something else needs to happen now, whatever they've been doing, we need to change up so I can bring everybody back. And then the final thing that um, I've observed about attention grabbers is that they might work better instead of at the beginning of a topic, have it more towards the end of uh, a, a student's study when they can better understand what's going on. So I give the example in the book of the a classic demonstration in a science classroom of the egg and the milk bottle, where you light a piece of paper in a bottle and you have a hard boiled egg on the uh, on the neck of the bottle. And what students see is it appears to them that the egg is getting sucked into the bottle after mm-hmm. the paper is burned for a little while. Um, and that is a, it's a little bit like a magic trick. Like, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, why in the world did that happen? And it might be interesting to do that instead after students have some background in the principles so that before you do the demonstration, they can actually try and predict what would happen and think, think through what, uh, uh, what the demonstration's about. Is that similar to, I like that example. Is that similar to, um, when you say like use discovery learning with care, or is that kind of like a different thought? 
It's a little bit different because with discovery learning, uh, you know, once you've got this principle in mind that uh, memory is the residue of thought, you realize like if discovery learning sort of by definition, um, you're a little unsure of what students are going to be thinking. Uh, there are, of course, times when that's going to be just fine with you as a teacher, but you should also bear in mind that um, if students sort of discover things that are not really right, uh, that are not um, uh, uh, insights that you want to stick with them, uh, then that's obviously more likely during discovery learning and memory being the residue of thought, that is what's going to stick with them. So you need to ask yourself, okay, what's, what's my strategy for that aspect of this lesson plan? How am I going to be sure that everybody's not only got it, but that this old memory that they initially discovered that I've not now decided is really not the way to go uh, is is in some way going to be erased, and the more suitable understanding is uh, is going to be its replacement. And again, the original question that we started with, I'm I'm trying to take you know somewhat of a page out of your book and and start with a question as we kind of started this interview. But it's just like how oh, I love do, it. how do we <laughs> get memory to stick into our mind, or as you put it, why do students remember everything that's on television and forget everything that I say? Is, is how you kind of um, wrote your article. I mean, so is is the short answer, it's just, it all comes back down to that memory is the residue of thought. Is, is that essentially it? Get I think that's, think about it. I, yeah, I think that's a fair one sentence summary. And I'll tell you, I'm frequently asked, like, if you could name one principle from cognitive psychology that you think is the most important for teachers to know, what would it be? And that that's the one I usually name. You, you know, we, everyone, of course, wants uh, lessons to stick with students after they leave your classroom, right? So everything really does turn on memory. It's not enough that they have insights in your classroom if they then forget them the moment they uh, step off the school grounds. Uh, memory is really central. And so, uh, that principle of memory being so important to what sticks with us, uh, I think it is really important to sort of keep that front and center during lesson planning. Uh, again, you're listening to Dr. Daniel Willingham with the University of Virginia. His book is Why Don't Students Like School, which I think you had a second edition come out fairly recently. Is that correct? I did. Yeah, 2020. That's great. And, uh, you know, it's it's very well rated on Amazon, and I'm sure you can find it wherever books are sold. Uh, I imagine it's full of lots of thoughts and uh, cognitive research, as we just discussed, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I've, uh, I've been very happy with the, the reception the book has gotten. Um, teachers have, a number of teachers have told me they've found it really interesting and useful. So that's really made me feel great. Excellent. If somebody likes to keep up with you, where do you like to hang out in the world of social media? Are you a Twitter guy or what? I'm mostly on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, I do have a Facebook page, uh, both Twitter and Facebook. My handle is DT Willingham. Excellent. Well, uh, Daniel, are you ready for today's pop quiz? Bring it on. <laughs> All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I was afraid. When you told me there was going to be a pop quiz, I thought, <laughs> it's going to be questions that I can't possibly answer. Or like, if you gave me a week, I could maybe think of something that I would later be happy with. <laughs> you're, um, you're, you're a thoughtful person, clearly. 
Uh, well, I mean, like, you know, how could, what, what in the world could you eliminate and be happy among, <laughs> happy about among the core subjects? I mean, yeah, uh, I, you know, I'm tempted to like, to, to sort of uh, cop out on that and say something completely non-obvious, like, well, it would be a cooking class, but I'd make them do like all of the standard, like that would have science in it and it would have math in it and so on, which is a little disingenuous, but I'm, I can't think of anything better. So that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say cooking that, that actually has literature and everything else wrapped up. In that's it. a clever answer. And it's the first time we've had that one. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? There needs to be greater emphasis on probability theory because, and the reason I say that is that there's a bunch of research recently. This is a very contemporary answer because there's, everyone's of course, extremely concerned about fake news and people's ability to um, differentiate reliable sources from unreliable sources. And it turns out you can, you can teach people some specific strategies to help them understand good sources versus unreliable sources on the internet. Sam Weinberg at Stanford has been especially um, a a real leader in that. But when it comes to um, thinking things through, you know, what we would generally call critical thinking, it's very hard to teach anything that seems to be broadly applicable. Everything seems to be very subject specific. Like if you understand how to think critically about U.S. history, that's great, but it's not really going to transfer to thinking critically, even about European history, all that well. Hmm. And it's certainly not going to transfer to thinking critically about math. Um, Probability theory seems to be the best one, though, in terms of, yeah, in terms of making good decisions, because many uh, so that's a that's really a critical uh, decision making is sort of a subset of critical thinking. Uh, but probability comes into many of the decisions that we make uh, in life. So I'm, I'm going to say probability theory. You're way smarter than me. Is probability theory almost like using mathematics to, to figure out what the truth yeah, is? It's under- yeah, exactly. It's understanding how to think about probabilities and how to use probabilities in calculations. Well, what does every child deserve? Every child uh, deserves to be in a, uh, I assume you're talking about in school, like what sort of school experience does every child deserve? Sure. Either school, life, whatever you think. I'm going to stick with school. And so for me, I think that every child deserves a uh, experience in school where they are in a space that is like, has uh, a good physical infrastructure where the the heating works the plumbing works uh there's no lead in the paint there's no asbestos um and it the the space is serene and beautiful and within that uh space they are both learning um skill knowledge and skills that will enable them to uh be happy members of society and then also uh, enable them to learn what will make them happy as individuals. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Well, for today's educators, the short-term answer is COVID is the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And everything that um, COVID has done to public schooling and done to parents. What's the best gift to give an educator? 
time, but you usually can't do that. But if there's some way you can give them time, that's wonderful. I've never met an educator who's not uh, horribly overworked. Which teacher changed your life? This is going to sound very corny, but my wife. Oh, yeah? She, is she, she's an yeah. educator? She is an educator. Um, and so that's not really what you meant. So it was a little bit of a cheat, but I'm going to stick with it anyway. Well, what, what'd she do there? I got to ask. Well, I mean, she's uh, uh, being my wife has obviously changed me in so many ways and uh, uh, being my partner and raising our beautiful family. Uh, but uh, sticking with the theme of the podcast and keeping it family friendly, what uh, what she's really done is um, uh, been a wonderful conversational partner in thinking through what makes for effective teaching. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I know psychology. I don't. Uh, I've never been a K-12 teacher. I don't know classrooms that well. And so I'm always trying to better understand um, teachers' perspectives and and children's perspectives. And uh, my wife has been an incredible teacher to me on that subject. Yeah, I'm assuming she's in K-12 education. Uh, she Yeah, she actually recently retired, but okay. yes. Okay, great. Um, and uh, last question, what's the favorite book that you've ever read, fiction, nonfiction? Ultimately, we're looking for just a good book recommendation for our listeners. Okay, yeah, that, that's a much easier question yeah. than my than my favorite book. Um, I li- well, you know what? I'll I'll name an author. I've I've enjoyed uh, pretty much all of Steve Pinker's book. Uh, Steve Pinker is a um, one of the best cognitive psychologists of my generation, and he also is uh, a fantastic writer. Uh, and so I would recommend to your listeners anything that Steve's written. Dr. Willingham, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us on Class Dismissed, and thanks for sharing all your wisdom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.